Hello, welcome back to episode five of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. I shouldn't know what that You said that, that with such <laughs> you said that with such confidence. Yes, yeah. episode five. It is, it is episode five, yes. Um <laughs> I am uh, Patrick Courtney, your host, uh, joined as ever by my co-host Will Davis Coleman. Um Yes, episode five. God, we're almost all the way through season two. Yeah. Yeah, how have you been? I've been great, man. Uh, you know, working hard or hardly working. And uh, yeah, just, uh, I guess, just watching loads of TV. Lots of history documentaries out at the moment. Yeah, that's like that. kind of all we, all we can do. Actually, I wanted to say something to you because I've been um, talking to my friend. Uh, we've got a plan when, you know, the world goes back to normal. I've got a plan to go to Anglesey. Which, if which is, oh. if you listen to the podcast, is where the Druids are from. Last season, we talked about the Druids of Anglesey or Mona, as it used to be called, and we've got plans to go there. So, I've been that discussing is... with my friends all the cool stuff we can go see. That is really cool. That is really cool. I'm very jealous. I wish I could go up there, but it is a bit of a trek for me. It's a bit closer to Manchester than <laughs> it, London. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit. Close. It's still pretty far. I mean, you know, Wales is. You don't really realize, but Wales is still a pretty big country, and you do have to go quite a trek. <laughs> and it's you know really far north western Wales. You know, it's right on the on the tip. Um, yeah. But yeah, we're really excited. I might get. You know, I I mean, you've heard on this podcast. I don't really put a lot of stock in like astrology and a lot of stuff like that but i do feel like i might buy some crystals or some wands from some druidic <laughs> shop because you know it sounds fun <laughs> your credibility amongst us uh, our physics listeners is just going like, down, and down and down and down yes because we have so many physics listeners. probably yeah yeah presumably we've got so many given how often we talk about astrologers <laughs> <laughs> and how little we talk about momentum and, and yeah, space. Yeah, we brought up uh, Galileo in the Patsy episode, I think. I think that's the only f- scientist I've brought up. Yeah, no, actually, I've, we've yet to find like a, a science-based um, assassination or something. Some, like, I'm sure Isaac Newton had someone killed because he was, oh, yeah. a, he was a bit of a maniac and kind of an awful guy. Like, I bet he had some rival scientist killed for some other guy actually got like a pear dropped on his head and he had him killed. <laughs> very likely very yeah, likely. yeah so yeah so this is our episode five and it is my turn and we will be looking at a very interesting uh figure from african history one of the most famous i think people from south african history uh and he would be kind of considered perhaps the alexander the great or actually probably more likely the genghis khan of south africa because we will be looking at shaka zulu Ooh, cool yeah, so Looking interesting. Forward to Although it. actually, I should probably say Shaka, King of the Zulu. Technically, calling him Shaka Zulu is a bit of a. He is the king of the Zulu people, um, okay. and to, calling him Shaka Zulu would be calling it would be like calling Queen Victoria Victoria England or Victoria Britain. It doesn't really like make that much sense. Like <laughs> you know, that's not his name. He is just the the king of the Zulu. But yeah, so we will be diving into South African history, which is somewhere we haven't been before. I think. No, I don't think we have. No. So, um, yeah, let's get started. So, we are looking at South Africa in the uh, 18th century um, and looking at uh, the Zulu tribe at this time, sort of when we our story starts in 1787. Um, and the Zulu tribe is pretty tiny at this moment. It is one tribe of many in the area. And it's kind of uh, eastern coastal South Africa we're looking at. Um, the Zulus were kind okay. of only possibly uh, up to like 1,500 people over maybe 10 square miles, something like that. You know, it's not a huge domineering tribe, which is what it would go on to be. It was just kind of one of the lowly tribes, um, kind of controlled by this, some bigger tribes in the, in the region. But all these tribes kind of had a vaguely peaceful coexistence. Their lives were very based on, like, they're hugely based on a pastoral economy, uh, their warfare was almost kind of ritualized. There was no huge bloodthirsty conquests that you know are typical of many other places in the world and typical of the white colonists colonists who are coming over who are also starting to make a presence known, um, particularly okay. the Dutch and the British. Um, but interesting, actually, our story won't feature too much of them because our story is the story of Shaka, um, and his tale actually includes very little of uh, British or Dutch involvement, which is actually quite unique. And I was surprised. Because I thought it would be another tale of, you know, British imperialism destroying, you know, tribal culture and, and you know, a tribal people. But actually, they do it all on their own. And maybe that is actually a bit, it's a weird kind of 
uh, vague prejudice where I assume that, you know, every place in the world must be just hugely affected by, the, you know, the British Empire when actually they have their own problems on their own. Well, I, I mean, the only thing I've ever heard of to do with Zulu um, is the film Zulu, which came out in the 60s with Michael Caine. Yeah. And that obviously has a massive amount of white colonialism and imperialism as the yeah. main like focal point. Um, yeah. I think... So, yeah, I was kind of expecting you to tell me that he was going to be some massive resistance fighter, like some sort of some massive shield against colonialism. But if this is, yeah. this is something yeah. completely refreshing, actually, not to have to to have white men in a story about a non-white um, yeah, yeah. king. I mean, to be honest, you know, it, it, a few years, you know, later down the line, you know, the British are heavily involved in, in Zulu. And I think that's what the film Zulu focuses on, although perhaps, you know, unfairly focuses on the British there when actually there's so much story for the actual uh, tribes and the people of the Zulu that they kind of gloss over. I think even there's even a film about Shaka Zulu and they focus on the one or two white imperialists who came to meet him. And stuff like that. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they kind of shy away from focusing on... I mean, you know, these are films that are pretty old, so it's not that surprising that they shied away from focusing from uh, tribal life. It's only really... I say modern day, I think we're still a long way from uh, getting really interesting stories. But it's just so fascinating that we don't know about this. I, it's actually kind of like Oscar in the last episode, although that was, you know, tribal leaders in North America fighting against the white man. Um, but it's a story we've never heard of. And actually, Shaka, although more people know about him, probably more people know about the Anglo-Zulu War that comes many years later, um, mm. just because we have our own prejudice and learn about our own history more than anyone else's history, which is a shame. Yep, lot, but maybe this is the turning point. The revisionist history is taking over. Yes. Starting one podcast episode at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, our story starts in 1787, where the chieftain of the Zulu tribe has his first son, but it's a illegitimate son. He considers it not really um, worthy of his uh, of of inheriting his throne. He doesn't marry his wife, um, and actually, in a kind of weird way of disowning the child, he refers to the pregnancy as being caused by an intestinal beetle, rather than claiming that actually it's you know he got the woman pregnant. And an so intestinal the... beetle. Yeah, it's that's pretty hard. That's a harsh. new one on me. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's pretty rubbish, isn't and it? And so, yeah, and actually the the name of the beetle is then bestowed kind of upon the child, and that name was Shaka. So that's where Shaka, so Shaka gets his name. Yeah. Shaka means beetle. Yeah, I think it's Ishaka oh um, is the beetle's Ishaka. name. But yeah, so he, the this child, uh, this bastard child, who from a very early age is cast out, um, and named Shaka and is kind of seen as a bit of an outcast. He, you know, I think he spends a few years uh, within his father's Zulu tribe. Um, but then when he is six, he is cast out and he and his mother flee to his mother's previous tribe. Um, it's okay. kind of considered one of the reasons that uh, his mother was considered not a wife and therefore Shaka was considered illegitimate is because they were from separate tribes. Um, oh, and that, you know, okay. wasn't really to do, you know, you needed to be Zulu to be able to marry the Zulu chief. So they're cast out to um, the mother's tribe. Um, but then at the age of 15, Shaka and his mother is then cast out again. So they're treated poorly in both his mother's and father's tribe, kind of bullied for being a fatherless outsider and a bastard child, despite him supposedly claiming to have a kind of royal bloodline. Yeah, that must be so hard being like a royal bastard. Yeah. In terms of like yeah. you get all the, the rubbish parts of the fame. You're infamous, really. You are, yeah, you're you're infamous and considered lesser, even than people who don't have a claim to royal blood. But I think being fatherless in in this time period in this culture is is a real uh, cut against who you are. And you know, Shaka will have internalized a lot of this a lot, a lot of this treatment that he took. And you know, he's bullied as a child um, f from the larger children. However, that doesn't last too long because as he grows, he grows tall and strong and learns he is very good at fighting. So, you know, the bullies okay. don't pick on him for too long. And actually, after being cast out of his father's tribe and his mother's tribe, he and his mother eventually settle in the Matethwa tribe, which is one of the largest tribes in the region. And they kind of settle down um, and Shaka gets enlisted in the military because he's seen as this, you know, tall, strong, expert fighter. And actually, he catches the attention of the Matethwa leader, the Matethwa chieftain, a man named Dingus Wyo. Um, who places him in, in command of an Ibutho, which an Ibutho is essentially uh, like a regiment. 
it's their, okay. you know, it's their kind of time for uh, like a small uh, battalion of soldiers. So Shaka has already started to like show himself as uh, an able-bodied warrior um, and kind of an impressive man. Uh, you know, despite growing up with such an awful childhood and being cast out, uh, this guy Dinjus Wyo actually sees something in him and decides to give him um, a chance and give him a bit of a command. And you know, really starts to utilize Shaka in the way he is in, in what he's best at, which is warfare and fighting. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Dinji Swayo had any idea that he was a royal bastard and maybe he could use him later down the line as like a uh, some sort of pawn in a political game. Wow, it's, uh, it's it's almost like you can predict this. It's almost like history repeats oh my God, itself really? all over the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, you've just, kind of got listen, that I have, I've, We don't discuss our topic, so it's not like this isn't like an obvious setup here. Really? I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a kind of, it's, it's perhaps a bit of a classic story. Um, sorry, sorry. Carry on. Yeah. You tell the story. I'm not too sure. And I have to admit, a lot of this uh, history is, because uh, a lot of, um, as we spoke about with the Native American history um, last week, African history is a bit the same way. It's a lot of oral history. And so a lot of what we know about this uh, comes a bit from their oral history, but it's hard to be sure about that, or from uh, the history that the white colonists wrote down, which would obviously be very skewed and actually sure. wouldn't take too much interest um, in you know the lives of these African tribes. So, you know, it's okay. a bit up in the air and some of these stories might be uh, difficult. You know, there's competing ideas among historians. We won't get too much into that because... You know, this is this is an hour long podcast, and I can't dive too far into it. And we prefer the no, story yeah. than the than the historical analysis. Um, although you probably like the historical analysis, so yeah, no, no, but it's good because then our listeners can go away and, and actually look it up for themselves. Yeah, so. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's it's unsure whether or not uh, Dinger's Wild knew from the outset uh, who Shaka was. There's a good chance he would have because they were kind of mistreated. But he gives uh, Shaka this chance, puts him in charge of an Ibutho, and actually. Later along the line, once Shaka has really shown uh, his loyalty to Dinjiswayo, as well as his sort of warfare prowess, Dinjiswayo finds a good use for him after Shaka's father, the chieftain of the Zulu, dies, and Shaka's half-brother takes over. And Dinjiswayo ah. sees this as an opportunity to expand the Matethwe. It's kind of growing as a Matethwe empire, sometimes it's referred to. It's a tribe that is starting to you know, incorporate many other tribes, still in a kind of uh, confederate of different tribes as opposed to one homogenous kingdom or something like that but he's looking to expand uh, his tribe and he sees Shaka as a perfect tool to you know he's a great warrior and he has a kind of possibly legitimate reason to rule the Zulus um, and so that's what he does he sends Shaka to uh, kill his half-brother and take over the Zulu tribe which Shaka does expertly really wait 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 so he literally t- can you imagine Shaka? That must be like, oh, sorry, that just sounds so difficult. Imagine someone came up to you and said, yeah, you had to go back to where you've been thrown out of however long ago, like a decade ago. Go in there, just kill your half-brother, it'll be a piece of cake. <laughs> you know. Mm. Well, I think the thing is, you know, Shaka is a very good warrior and is now leading a war band from one of the most powerful tribes in the region. So he'd be well-armed, he'd have a lot of soldiers, and he's got a grudge. You know, these are people who cast him out. You know, he probably hated his father and hated his half-brothers who, you know, he's the elder son, technically. And these half-brothers, he could see them as taking what is rightfully his. And so he goes back and is exacting his revenge. And that's kind of a a recurring theme with Shaka. You know, at the beginning when I was reading this, and I'm sure listening to the way I'm talking about it, you can kind of see him as a bit of a, possibly a bit of a hero because, you know, he's cast out and he's this returning bastard child who uh, takes over his father's throne and casts the out these born. evil yeah, yeah. doers but he's pretty bloody about the way he goes about it and i imagine takes a lot of pleasure in exacting his revenge yeah okay so is there any like details on how he does it or is it just a, a sort of straight down the middle coup i i think he i think technically the half-brother is assassinated although there aren't too many details exactly how i imagine it is really a bigger tribe it's bigger army diplomacy really because he's got the backing of dingeswire who was a very powerful man in the region and yeah. with that backing and probably with his knowledge of the area and there may have been lots of people who could have uh, warmed to him because they actually see him you know he's not quite as much of an outsider as Dinger's Wire would have been he is a Zulu he is of Zulu birth he's technically of a royal line um, yeah and also he's pretty scary he's a tall imposing figure you know people don't want to mess with him 
So he's able to take over the Zulu tribe, which is, you know, a pretty amazing feat. You know, after being exiled at the age of six as a bastard child, he now returns and usurps his father's throne. But his his rather meteoric rise doesn't end there. Because uh, a year after Shaka became chieftain of the Zulu, Dingus Wyo is killed by a man named Zwide, who is the leader of a rival tribe called the Undwandwe. So this is a really big moment for Shaka. And it's kind of... A, different historians debate on uh, where his positioning was in this, because some of the things I read show him as being absolutely distraught. Uh, his kind of possibly almost father, father figure, the man who gave him a chance and the man who helped him take back his father's throne, um, yeah. has now been killed by this man's wee day. But there's also some evidence to think that actually he was maybe a bit opportunistic and he used this to take control of the much larger Metethwe clan because that's exactly what he does. He steps in um, where uh, Dingus Wyo leaves and he is able to take over not over now just the Zulu tribe but also also the growing Metethwe uh, empire essentially as well as a number of other smaller tribes and actually he this is where he wow. begins the Zulu kingdom. Hang on, sorry. That, that that's a massive meteoric rise. What happened yeah. to the guy who murders um, the former Mutendwe Mutendwe um, leader? Surely he would want to take power. So was he's that like a civil he, war. Yeah, no. So he's a that's a rival clan. So they're you know complete enemies. Um, he's not so much sorry. When I said rival, he's not like within the Mutendwe. He is uh, an opposing clan. The Ndwandwe oh. are sort of an enemy clan and uh, they attack the Matethwe and Dinger's Wire and are able to kill him. I think they actually capture him and then kill him later, but they don't, you know, invade uh, the entire region because actually at this time, that wasn't something that happened too often. It was, most warfare was more about, you know, getting into a scrap, defeating your enemy and then taking a bit of land. There wasn't this kind of conquering spirit um, that Shaka would instill in the people many years later. They kind of saw it as, you know, you know, they had disagreements with the Metethwe, so Zwide, you know, kills and captures, or captures and kills um, Dinges Wyo, and then kind of leaves them alone. Possibly takes a bit of land, takes a bit of cattle, which was the very important resource at the time. Everything was oh, really? in cattle, yeah. Okay. And so that's kind of where it left, and he didn't immediately, you know, he wasn't a conqueror, he didn't assume rule of the Metethwe, which allowed Shaka to step into those shoes. So it wow. is a huge rise from a, you know, uh, an abandoned, exiled bastard child to now not only chieftain of the Zulus, but, you know, chieftain and kind of self-styled king of this now massive uh, confederacy of tribes that had been brought mm. together by Dinges Wire and was now ruled by Shaka. I see. Yeah, that really is a cracking start to your 20s yeah 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 it's a it's it's a pretty big deal he is 29 shaka is 29 when he takes over chieftain of the zulu so he's 30 uh if that's yeah the dates might be a bit skewed if here but um just because of the the historical record but yeah around the age of 30 when he takes over the metethwe goodness me so that's pretty impressive isn't it like he's he's really shown himself off as this kind of leader which people either through fear or respect are able to rally behind um because it as far as i'm aware he doesn't have too many rivals within um who are also trying to claim the metethwe throne um dinges actually saw shaka as kind of a protege he was one of his favorites like he's given a huge amount of freedom when he becomes chieftain of the zulu unlike many of the other chieftains um which uh Dingeswar had kind of annexed and was kind of giving limited control. Shaka was actually given quite full reign to rule as he saw fit. And so it kind of makes sense. He may have seen him as almost a successor. I don't have it here whether or not Dingeswar has a son or a child. Presumably they may have stepped up, but if they did, they probably didn't last long. No. Sounds like this guy is like a, a force of nature, just like like really stamping his way through history absolutely i mean he is i mean there's a reason i compared him to genghis khan at the beginning because he is kind of i mean also i'd imagine you'd compare him to alexander the great who for some reason has a slightly romantic view despite being a conqueror who probably killed thousands and you know i mean maybe not on the same scale as genghis khan but yeah he no 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 no. but you know he would have killed more people than shaka um, and yet Shaka ends up having a slightly uh, dodgy reputation, whereas for some reason Alexander the Great, I don't really know a huge amount about Alexander the Great, but I know he's kind of seen in a very romantic way, which is... Of bit, course, yeah, a bit, a bit like the birth of white civilization, you know? Yeah, so. yeah, despite There's that birth reason. coming through a lot of bloodshed. 
Um, so yeah, so Shaka is now king of the Zulus, and he really brings all these tribes together into one uh, homogenous group called the Zulu. Um, this is where we start getting the term Zululand, um, and his kingdom. Ah. You know, he kind of does away with a lot of the uh, internal politics and the internal tribal structure. Um, between the different uh, chieftains. I mean, a lot of the chiefs are still around and they will still help govern, but he kind of reorganizes the whole, his new kingdom into one group that he is the absolute leader. There's no, no one crosses Shaka and he's kind okay. of a bit of a dictator, uh, tyrannical authoritarian leader. And that's kind of how he sees himself as well, but also a very strong military leader. And actually, that's where some of the most amazing things that Shaka... Amazing, in air quotes. Um, it's almost like if you say awesome, but the original version of it doesn't necessarily mean good. Because yeah. the things that Shaka does are horrific, but are quite extraordinary, um, especially when it comes to warfare. Okay. I mentioned earlier that um, some of the previous warfare um, before Shaka's time within these tribes was almost kind of ritualistic. Essentially, it would kind of go down where two tribes would have a disagreement over land or cattle. Those were kind of the two main things. And they would each bring a bunch of warriors to a predetermined location. They would chuck uh, insults at each other, occasionally chuck some spears at each other, maybe take out, you know, draw some blood, possibly kill one or two people. And then normally the smaller side would back down and then there'd be an exchange of cattle or land. It wasn't really this, you know, drawn out full war um, that we see in, you know, the rest of the, the world. So it's actually remarkably civilized, actually, reading about it. You know, it'd still be fairly brutal and there would be some casualties. And yeah, it was more theatrical. kind of showy and it was a show of strength. And then if you weren't able to show as much strength you would back down. I think, you know, there was a kind of understanding that they didn't want to lose all their people. They weren't. And because it's tribal nations, but uh, still quite, you know, they would be in close, there may have been marriage alliances between them. They would all be quite close-knit. They're not looking to completely annihilate uh, an enemy. But this isn't what Shaka sure, sees. Yeah. This isn't how Shaka sees warfare. He sees it as the opposite. He sees wars are there to annihilate your enemy and to completely destroy anyone who would oppose you and envelop other tribes. And this is the kind of psychologically he goes forward with to turn him into a conqueror, essentially a kind of bit of a bloodthirsty conqueror. Really? Okay. But he also has some great uh, innovative techniques for warfare. Um, one of the most important ones is weapons. So before Chaka, most of the warfare would be done using a, a cowhide shield and a long throwing spear. Oh, yeah. Which works to a certain extent kind of worked well for those ritualistic battles when you're just throwing spears at each other you're just it's a show of force it's not really meant for you know decimating another for uh, another army but shaka changes what they use and swaps their long throwing spears for shorter stabbing spears with a long blade that were called um ikwa Ah. And the name Ikwa actually supposedly, I've only read this one place, but it's quite a cool um, detail. Supposedly the, the term Ikwa comes from the sound it makes as you pull it out of your victim's belly because it would kind of get lodged and kind of explode oh. out um, just from suction. So yeah, Ikwa oh. is supposedly where that comes from, which is... Oh, that's so, that's so yeah, visual. Yeah, pretty, that's pretty gross. Um, but these weapons were sort of devastating at close range and that's what he taught his soldiers to do is to get in close, you know... Defend yourself from these throwing spears, but the throwing spears were not in in any way ready to deal with a close combat battle. You know, you couldn't manoeuvre them quickly, and these really um, short spears with long blades, they're almost like swords, but actually a bit even more manoeuvrable because you've got the long shaft and probably it would have been weighted at one end so you could, you know, grip it at the end and then move it really quickly. You would quick, you would move in, knock someone's shield aside and stab them in the belly and then move on. That was the kind of tactic that he inspired in his troops. And his troops became yeah. a lot more disciplined. Before they were kind of groups of warriors that were there to show off, he turned them into soldiers and into killers, essentially, who could decimate uh, an enemy force. So that was, okay. uh, that was one of his innovations. Okay. But his other one, and one of his most famous ones, is a battle tactic that would be called uh, the Bullhorns. And it's a very simple tactic. And actually, it's kind of similar to, I think, lots of other, oh. um, you know, battles will be using a very similar tactic. Um, but he started using it. Uh, and I think he's kind of credited as inventing it, especially for his region. You know, it would have been used, I'm sure, you know, Roman armies used it and various other armies around the world would have used it. 
but he's credited it as kind of creating mm. it for his new type of warfare. And the way it would work, he would split okay. his soldiers into three distinct groups. Um, the first, known as the chest, would be made up of his strongest and most veteran soldiers. And they would, you know, face the enemy square on, charge them, and kind of pin them down in combat. So they would move in quickly, they would, you know, hold up their cowhide shields to defend themselves from the throwing spears, and then move in and start tearing them apart uh, with their short Iqua spears. Um, at the same time, the horns, which is another part, uh, which were made up of younger and faster warriors, would flank the enemy. So they'd move either side. I'm gesturing for you, although I realise that listeners can't see, but if you imagine, you know, horns moving round an enemy, <laughs> either going just to the sides or all the way around uh, to attack from behind, they would then flank and trap the enemy against the horns and the chest so that the enemy was stuck in this position, couldn't manoeuvre, really possibly couldn't even retreat, because if the horns had got all the way around the back, you know, they're kind of stuck between this. It's a kind of, uh, was it hammer and anvil technique? Um, yeah, yeah. A bit different, but it kind of has that same thing, whereas if you can keep your enemy in one position and you're surrounding them, you have a massive advantage, especially if you're using weapons that are, you know, specialised for close combat, whereas your enemy is using long spears. And, you know, they can't move back and then throw another volley of spears because they're surrounded. And then the third um, group were called the Loins, which I think is quite funny. These were This was a large reserve <laughs> force that were held back from the main battle and would be ready to be deployed to any part of the battle that seemed necessary, either to press an advantage or to bolster uh, an element that was failing. So if one of the horns started to you know, break apart and then the enemy started to was able to get out of this trap, the Loins were sent in to reinforce there. Or if they were starting to break down because the chest was really pushing through, they'd send more soldiers in there to completely wipe them out. So it was this reserve force that were ready to be used um, wherever necessary. That's really, yeah, that's very clever tactics, isn't it, really? Because it's so, you'd think that you'd want to deploy every soldier you had, but actually no one's expecting yeah, to have Yeah, 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 you're sort of, it, somehow. it's that kind of tactical element where you want to use your soldiers where they will be most effective. You don't just want to throw them against something that they're going to die over and over again. You need to be able to be, you know, it, it, you know it, it's probably tempting to send all your soldiers in and for less disciplined commanders, that's what they would do. I mean, you know, a lot of the demonstrations of this tactic assume that the other force are one group that's just advancing. And it might be that they use this tactic on multiple advancing groups. So if one you know, set of warriors was sent in, they would use the horns and the chest to attack them. And then if another one came in, they would perhaps pull back uh, and then swap out, use some of the reserve force. Yeah, and then redo it. So it's a tactic it. they could use over and over again. Mm. And the brilliance of this tactic was really in its simplicity because there are three roles and every soldier would know which one they were and would always kind of know what they wanted to do. Other than perhaps the loins, which were waiting to be told what to do. You know, if you're the chest, you know, you charge and you pin the enemy down. You're not there to really manoeuvre around. If you're the horns, even if you've lost no. all your, you know, you're a bit confused. You've lost a commander. You're not sure where to go. You can see the battle. You know what you're supposed to do. Loop round, flank the enemy and get in behind. And that sort of simplicity made it so easy for his soldiers to follow and actually at a time when complicated signaling wasn't really a thing you needed a very simple battle tactic in order to be effective because otherwise if people don't know what they're doing any tactic will fall apart but because everyone knew exactly what they wanted to do and actually Shaka yeah. used this battle tactic in almost all his battles so they didn't, there was no, you know, his enemies weren't really cottoning on. Although the awkward thing was because his enemies didn't last long and he would move on to a new tribe. So there wasn't really a, you know, an established force that were able to resist him. Dissemination yeah, of yeah, information. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's difficult yeah. to possibly explain exactly, you know, in the heat of battle, it's hard to know exactly what beat you. And especially as the, the loins were probably deployed in different ways every time, it might be hard to know exactly what the tactic was. Um, but it was such an effective tactic that he was able to just... Yeah destroy any enemy that came at him i'm pretty sure later down the line um the brits fall foul of the um the bull and horns tactic at yes. the battle of yeah. islam wanda i think it's how you say it and they butcher them there yeah 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 it's that kind of it's really understanding battle in a way that 
you know only certain commanders really get the you know understanding where you need to give ground where you need to because quite often i think the, the the other tactic would be if the chest would perhaps sometimes pull back a bit to allow the flanks the horns to move round you know it's about giving ground to force your enemy into a weaker position actually and the 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 battle of Izamwanda is one of those cases i think where i mean that's also a case of uh, British general stupidity, to be honest, because they yes. don't reinforce. They they drastically underestimate um, the Zulus. They think they're just going to be able to nip them in the bud. And in fairness, uh, the Battle of Isamwanda is shortly followed up by the Battle of Rourke's Drift, um, which is which Zulu. is the opposite. Yeah, which is the opposite, where a massive Zulu force is defeated by a relatively minor British force, basically because not defeated. The... No, not, not defeated. defeated. No, not defeated, but beaten back. Um, but yeah. and the, you know the the British in that case were more practical and reinforced themselves properly and just used their superior firepower. Whereas the, you know, the previous battle they wanted, there's that kind of mistake that happens a lot, especially with the British Empire, especially with a larger force, the assumption that, you know, your firepower, we talked about it with um, America and Vietnam last episode, but, you know, that understood, that assumption that because you are technologically superior, you don't have to have good tactics. You just need to throw soldiers and bullets just at the enemy and you will... You will yeah. obliterate them, and there's a. It probably happens quite often where that does work, but when you are up against a really good commander and great battle tactics, it can't. It doesn't always go your way, and you still need to be prepared for for anything. It just. I mean, it just shows you that warfare is bloody work, and it's it's all a bit horrific to be honest. I mean, you know yeah, that was. The, you know the 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 the, the tribes of uh, this part of South Africa, you know, went from these very ritualistic battles that were still bloody, but you know, the casualty rate was very low to these just absolute blood. Probably just shocked by the whole change. Yeah, yeah. You know. So Shaka would then go on to use these tactics uh, in a pretty bloody conquest of all of the surrounding regions um, to bring them in under his domain. He would sometimes do it diplomatically where possible, kind of forcing their hand um, and perhaps tribes who had seen the destruction of their neighbours at Shaka's hand decided it's not worth it let's just join with him and he would allow it you know he wasn't okay he, he wasn't uh, insane yet um uh, <laughs> but yet. anyone who okay. yeah yeah um but anyone who would resist him would be just utterly smashed and destroyed um for these you know unbelievably effective battle tactics um and within okay. two years of assuming control of both the zulu and Matewa tribes shaka had defeated basically any rival who could oppose him, including Zwide and the Ndwandwe, the the really? guy and the tribe who defeated and killed Dingeswire. So like how big was the the Empire of Shaka becoming at this point after defeating all his rivals? So it's like, certainly much larger than any other tribe in the region or had been before, but in, you know, absolute geographical terms. I'll put a map up of the Instagram and, and I think you can see it on our document. Um, it's still oh, yeah. fairly small in comparison to the rest of South Africa. But what's interesting is that while Shaka's bloody conquests were kind of localised to the coastal region and didn't you know, go too far in, they had this other effect um, that kind of rippled throughout South Africa that would be called the Mefakane, or in English, the crushing, which is kind of just this knock-on effect from these bloody conquests. Essentially... Oh. After defeating a tribe, or perhaps in response to more of Shaka's conquests, some of the tribe, what was left of them, would go into exile, would either be cast out or would just flee Shaka's wrath. And they would head out and obviously find themselves on other tribal land. And these exiles and refugees started to take on the tactics of Shaka himself. So rather oh. than you know the slightly more peaceful times of before... They would flee Shaka and kind of turn into very similar type of marauding uh, tribal armies. And they would, again, use Shaka's tactics. They would use the same weapons. Um, you know, they would make their own ikwas and would attack other tribes to find land. And it created this knock-on effect because then those tribes would do the same. And it's this kind oh, of no. <laughs> like wave of destruction as people were fleeing um, the Zulus but kind of turning into very similar uh, marauding fighters themselves, which would then, of course, drive more people. And you have this domino effect that kind of spreads out across South Africa. So although the Shaka himself and the Zulu kingdom 
was localized into a slightly smaller area, his the effect he had was much larger, and was spreading out through the mm. region and kind of decimated the region. It's really sad. Um, there's a there's an estimation that this uh, cycle of bloodshed that Shaka had caused would claim the life of uh, over a million people. Wow. And so it's really destructive what he does. And it's not just the direct uh, conflicts that he starts, it's the effect on the region. He's, it, he's like a catalyst to this bloodshed cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's wow. like a, he's like a, I was going to say, a spark with a fire, a fire mm. uh, like passing through it. But it's worse than that because it wasn't like the land was primed for this. He turned these people into a bloodier, more aggressive, conquering people. Um, sure. Because they had to be just to, in order to protect themselves and and you know escape Shaka's wrath, they had to turn themselves into these bloody warriors. Whereas they would have been much more peaceful pastoral farmers beforehand. Maybe not completely peaceful, but at least more peaceful than what uh, Shaka had turned them into. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting though that how um, I'm guessing this is where Shaka gets his reputation from for being this bloodthirsty warlord. But to be honest with you, with the sort of timing of everything going on at any time in european history you don't get you don't get this uh, ritualistic uh sort of fighting you always had bloodthirsty it's you or me mate kind of tactics mm. so it's not mm. anything you'd you know if he'd been you know a war chief say in france back in like the medieval times we wouldn't have thought of him as any more brutal or bloodthirsty as say mm. one of the frankish kings you know what i mean yeah. it's just because where he's situated it, he's an obvious, sort of outstandingly uh, brutal commander who had yeah. a different take. Do you know what I mean? Like it's quite interesting. Like he's uh, he's kind of besmirched his own name by doing the tactics where if he'd been anywhere else in the world, he would have just been a pretty good, decent leader. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of funny. Yeah, how, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. I think at this time, you know, the the tribes of that region hadn't had this type of warfare normalized for them, which it has yeah. for much of Europe and lots of the rest of the world. You know, we were talking about uh, feudal Japan. That at that time in history, what we were talking about the sort of Sengoku period, warfare was just the way of life. And you know, the tactics used in there are almost identical to this, but it was considered more normal because everyone was doing it. Whereas yeah. Shaka was kind of—I don't want to say too much because I don't—I'm I'm not hugely up on you know the entirety of South African history. Um, but Shaka, in particular, at this time, seems unique in his destructive efforts and the way he went about conquering this land is unusual sure. um, for the time. Although, you know, it, it, like, as you say, it's it's quite normal for human history in general. Um, but the, the people of this area had been lucky beforehand and actually had a rather peaceful um, time of it. So now we're going to look into uh, Shaka's downfall because obviously a kingdom built on blood and conquest can't last forever. Well, most of the time it can't last forever. <laughs> so Shaka was, uh, at this time, especially as he became more and more warfare-like, had become a bit of a cruel, tyrannical leader. He had absolute authority and would you know, execute people at the nod of his head for any sign of disloyalty. He also dreaded producing a legitimate heir. He obviously had a quite an interesting uh, idea of inheritance and having an heir probably because of the way he took power so yeah. he kind of refused to have a legitimate heir he, he actually executed many women who became pregnant from him so there's wow. a bit of you know what's that word infanticide or you know there's a lot of killing your own family um which you know is a part of his has been a part of his life for from the beginning He's always uh, been had no qualms about uh, killing and executing his own family members, but now he's doing it to his unborn children because he either fears or just doesn't want to have to deal with a possible rival. Yeah. So okay. he's starting yeah. to become pretty intense. He's also obviously very brutal to his enemies, not just in the battle tactics, but when he was still at war with the Ndwandwe, he has a big battle with uh, their forces and fails to capture Zwide, but he does capture Zwide's mother and he subjects her to a particularly gruesome death. He locks her in a house with jackals and hyenas to devour her and then burns the house down. Ugh. So he's, you know, and, and he has a very interesting relationship with women and with mothers because he almost, he kind of worships his mother, this woman who raised him and protected him from a young age. And I think he sees, you know, as killing someone's mother as uh, the ultimate 
vile act and a great way to destroy your enemy. And that's how he, you know, he targets uh, his enemy's mother more than anyone else, which I think is really interesting. Because interesting. where things really start to unravel for Shaka is in 1827, where Shaka's mother dies of dysentery. Okay. And Shaka's grief drives him to even worse uh, atrocities. He kind of goes a bit psychotic at this point. He puts a thousand people to death for being for showing insufficient grief for the death of his mother. Oh my he God. orders that no crops should be planted for a year. He orders hundreds and thousands of cows to be killed so their calves can know what it's like to live without a mother. And then possibly worst of all, all women found pregnant are executed along with their husbands. Oh my so goodness. He has gone possibly Completely insane. Round the bend, yeah. Yeah, like I mean he was a kind of cruel and bloodthirsty man beforehand, but this grief just pushes him over and he's gone almost completely insane and is now killing thousands of people. Yeah, but that would also really cripple his economy if he's saying no crops should be laid and he's killing the workers at an alarming rate and all of yeah, the next yeah. generation being killed in their mother's bellies. I mean it's terrible. It's it's pretty it's pretty intense and actually it probably would have done more damage to the zulus if uh, it hadn't come to an end a kind of abrupt way in the way that most of our stories do on this in this series oh here we go so obviously after all this death and all this conquest uh, shaka had built up a number of enemies and which would hasten his demise and his demise would actually come at the hands of two of his half brothers which is another interesting thing because he Ooh. is you know one for killing his own half brothers but are, are these half-brothers related to the half-brother who took over? Are they all related to the king they, before? Yeah, they would have all been son um, of the original Zulu chieftain. Um, okay. I believe they would have all been half-brothers. I don't think, you know, that, that Zulu chieftain actually had multiple wives and so had multiple legitimate sons who I were half-brothers. But these two guys, uh, Dingane and Mahalangana, these two guys decide, you know, it's time for Shaka to go. He is too bloodthirsty he is sending our soldiers out to conquer more and more land, which is draining our resources and just causing more bloodshed. And now, after the death of his mother, he has become psychotic. He has become yeah. a mad king, to use Game of Thrones lingo. <laughs> yeah. And he needs to be done away with. So, in September 1828, so a year, about a year after um, Shaka's mother has died, and so they're still continuing this period of psychotic rage and you know indiscriminate murder the half-brothers decide this is a time to to make their move because Shaka has actually just sent the bulk of his army north to conquer more land and to possibly uh, reinforce the idea that everyone should still be in grief over his mother. Um, okay. And it leaves Shaka and his capital city relatively unguarded and leaving Shaka very vulnerable. So this is the time when they decide to strike. And they actually use, they get help from another man, um, a advisor to Shaka called Umpapa. Okay. And the three of them decide this is the time to strike. And so while Umbopa distracts Shaka outside a military barracks, the two half-brothers charge him and stab him, fatally killing him. So it's a... Wow. It's a what, pretty, was it's it a, with an equa? Well, I don't know, and it doesn't say it, but you'd think so. And it would be great, you know, poetic irony if it was. It, it, to be honest, you know, it's close combat fighting. It's a good chance it would have been... Also could have just been knives, because yeah. that is actually the, probably the most common you know, kind of noble on noble uh, assassination technique really throughout history, isn't it? Nice. Yeah. I feel like if only Shaka had had, uh, you know, a grief therapist, I think he would have been all right. Um, he may have and had him killed. To be honest, like, you know, he would have had, he, he would have had aunts and other, you know, he, a lot of his um, kingdom was actually ruled by supposedly stern women. Oh, cool. But because he never took a wife or, you know, had too many heirs, he wouldn't bestow right to rule on his progeny but he would hand it over to his aunts so he would have perhaps had people telling him you know to stop killing people but he <laughs> had gone a bit mad at this time and would have probably killed them so i think he'd gone too far down he had already left led a very brutal cruel life yeah and this death had just pushed him over the edge so his two brothers attack him and kill him and actually we have supposedly his dying words i say supposedly because they are 
unusually prophetic for dying words, <laughs> as most dying words almost always are. Yeah. Um, you know, actual dying words are probably like, oh my god, you're killing me, ah, and that's probably it. You know, yeah. it's either it's either something really ironic, like, what are you going to do, kill me? Or it's something, <laughs> you know, uniquely prophetic. But supposedly what he says is, hey brother, you kill me thinking you will rule, but the swallows will do that. And the swallows he's referring to are actually the white colonists because they supposedly made their uh, houses out of mud. And that's what swallows do. So he was referring oh. to the idea that the actually in, you know, these two half-brothers, particularly uh, Dingane, who would be the one to succeed, he wants to rule, but actually it will be the white man that really rules over him. And that is kind of what happens because the Zulu history from this point is, you know, marred by white colonists. And, you know, later on they get involved in the Anglo-Zulu War, which is something that wasn't really part of Shaka's reign. Interesting. So okay. he is able to kind of give this strange prophetic statement at the end of his life that haunts uh, his successors. And actually, Dingani goes on and actually ends up fighting with a lot of the Dutch colonists in particular, but then he's killed by another half-brother and it goes on. And there's this kind of cycle of bloodshed continues after Shaka, so it's not quite a peaceful reign um, as perhaps they were hoping for. But yeah, mm. so that is that, and that is where our story ends. Um, obviously, there is a lot more history to to the Zulus, especially the Anglo Zulu War. But that's perhaps a story for another time, because yeah. our, our focus is on the assassination. But yeah, this is the rise and fall of Shaka. Wow, one of perhaps one of the most bloody characters we've we've read about in this um, in this series. I think I'm trying to think. Like, I mean, this is really destructive stuff. He was on board with. You're right. I don't think we actually have come across very many megalomaniacs in our in our episodes. They yeah, yeah, we've had silent strike. Or, yeah, yeah, we've had lots of you know puppet master behind the scenes sort of characters who will also cause a lot of deaths, but you know they're not out in front uh, masking people. I guess Odin Odin Obanaga would be the nearest. That's true. That's true. Odin Obanaga. And actually, I did get kind of feelings with him reading about Shaka. It's a kind of similar thing, you know paranoia and a, a quick to execute anyone who opposes you yeah and then you know at the very end dies through treachery i wouldn't i you know i, I wouldn't go as well i would go as far to say it. i'd imagine that most tyrannical leaders fall to treason as opposed to you know actual <laughs> enemies living taking long them lives yeah 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 yeah, either, yeah they re- they re- they rarely live to an old age and they also i think rarely die to you know an actual enemy force it's normally treachery it's people close to them who've had enough yeah, and that's what happened to Odenobunaga, and that's what happened to Shaka, because people were just unable to be willing to put up with his shit anymore because he'd become a bit of a maniac by the end. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. That's so, yeah. really so so that's eye-opening. our story. There was actually one more thing I wanted to mention because it's something that you sent me earlier this week, and it's weird how many times this podcast has been strangely timed. But actually, you sent me a BBC article because the Zulu monarchy which is still around was actually in the news recently because there has been a bit of a uh, an uneasy time with a kind of change of power recently ah so essentially the late zulu king who died about three months ago he named his queen as regent for the last three months and her job was essentially to kind of pick uh, the next ruler but she uh, unexpectedly died last week and in her ah. will she named uh, the eldest son prince Misu Zulu as the as the heir and as the person to inherit the throne and supposedly at the reading of the will another prince and other members of the family shouted out and started getting very annoyed and you know weren't happy with this decision and so there was a kind of dangerous time where it seemed like there was almost like a mini civil war within the within the Zulu royal family brewing it has calmed down now since and supposedly all the family are now on board and are swearing loyalty to the future king but it's a very interesting thing that, again, I mean, it's interesting that it's another tale of brothers disagreeing. So I wonder if yeah. this is a kind of a common thing within um, Zulu tradition. And it's interesting that actually it's up for debate because he is yeah. the eldest son. You know, it's interesting that this other prince may have thought he had a claim. Perhaps, you know, unlike, you know, European royal families, the the line of succession isn't as clear. I think it's the same with like possibly sultans. And also with Mongols. The Mongol Khans were chosen by election or by a favourite son rather than the eldest. Yeah, yeah, so it was quite it could be quite easy, which is presumably a more dangerous position to be in because it almost means every change of uh, swap of power 
could end in civil war. Whereas in theory, I know it happens a lot in European monarchs as well, but in theory, it's a lot more direct. As long as you have an heir and a spare, you consider the death of a monarch to be, it should be a quite simple change of power. It rarely is, but it's more likely to be simple than perhaps these these times. But um, yeah, so it's interesting. It's weirdly timed that we talk about the Zulus now, and yet they have this other big important event going on. Yeah, cool. So, well, brilliant. So yeah, hope you like that episode. I really enjoyed doing it. Shall we move on now to our closer look? Yeah, let's do it. So yeah, for this week's closer look, I am just like piggybacking off the back of uh, Shaka Zulu's fratricidal death um, by doing exa- exactly that. Thank you <laughs> by doing exactly <laughs> the same thing. Um, and actually, it, it it does relate because it, I feel like when we were lis- when I was hearing Shaka's story, it really felt quite Roman emperor esque. And this is a good little segue because my mind this week will be on two emperors, brother emperors who Ooh. were ruling in um, 211 CE, so um, at the height of the Roman Empire. Wow, so it's simultaneous emperors. Yeah, so you didn't get this very often, um, at least at this up to this point. I think they were the first brothers to share the imperial throne. Wow. Um, but as you will see, it, and obviously because it's a fratricidal <laughs> closer look, it doesn't get and we're br- well. And we're bringing it up. It's not going to end well. Nothing we bring up ever ends well, just by definition. No. <laughs> so just a little bit of context. So the person who was ruling before the brothers, um, the brothers' names, by the way, were Caracalla and Gita. And they were very different to each other. Gita was much more of an administrati- administrative genius, um, wasn't a warrior in any way, um, and, but was a little bit... Um, he wasn't, you wouldn't put him out on stage. He was a bit um, of a shrinking violet. Whereas his brother, Caracalla, was a big, bullish man. You know, like a proper, like, mm. sort of meat and potatoes, big oaf, basically. Yeah, yeah. Henry VIII type. Yeah. But sounds like a sort legs. of extrovert and an introvert, doesn't it? It does a bit, yeah. <laughs> actually, um, it so also sounds like, it sounds like Henry VIII and Henry VII, actually. <laughs> it does a bit, yeah. Mm. Um, so their their predecessor was their father, who was Emperor Severus. And he was actually the very first African emperor of Rome, because he was born in Libya, in a place called Lepsis Magna. Oh, wow. Um, Presumably not still Roman of, you know, descent, not... He wasn't no, African of descent, yeah. he was African. He was African. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he and there were actually quite a few African um uh later emperors, but he mm. was the first. Um and he took power um after a major infighting civil war and he takes seizes the throne and has a really successful uh two decades I think. Yeah, almost two decades he rules uh Rome and he pushes the empire to its absolute limits um in terms of as far as it ever gets. Um so over in the east he pushes it as far as the east goes, right into Parthia, sort of modern-day Iraq, um, all the wow. way up to the Tigris River, which runs through Baghdad. Although they never actually reached Baghdad, because I thought they did, but they didn't. Um, mm. And then and then he makes peace with the Parthians and holds there. And then he goes all the way to the other end, all the way up to Scotland, where he invades. Um, he reinforces the Hadrian's Wall and then uh, re-establishes the Antonine Wall, which is a whole hundred miles north of Hadrian's Wall. So he's like, you wow. know, he's pushing boundaries everywhere. Um, so and the, he basically, the, yeah. The huge limits of the uh, the Roman Empire, he actually pushes them a little bit further. He does, yeah. And wow. then um, he actually then dies in 211, in the January of 211, in York, or Eboracum, as it was called back in roman times he dies in york um, oh he wow does. yeah so he has a really interesting life and uh, anyway when, on whilst he's in scotland he gets both of his sons who he's been given pa- he's been giving them power anyway so they get used to you know because he's trying to establish his own family dynasty and he does it's called the severan dynasty um and so he's trying to give them power and of course gita becomes like an administrative genius whereas caracalla becomes this sort of he's in charge of like five five cohorts in a legion and mm. things like that um one thing that we do know according to the historians um, of the time was that gita was kind of the nicer son to the father and much more respectful whereas caracalla was very scornful of his father and kind of like not very not a very nice guy overall a bit more rebellious um, 
Yeah, and just a big brute, you know. So he just mm. he was a bully, basically. Anyway, so but on the death of 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 Severus, uh, the the whole plate, the whole empire is split into two, uh, according to Severus's will, and so they begin their emperorship in York. So both of them are in York with their father by their father's side when he dies. Oh um, God. And also, crucially, their mother is there. So this is the very important. So their mother was called Julia Domna. And although Gita and Caracalla didn't particularly get on, they both loved their mother. So she becomes the mediator between the two brothers. Right? Right, yeah. So once you become emperor in York, you have to go back to Rome to reestablish your power, right? To actually have a coronation. So both brothers start travelling back to Rome from York, which would take them quite a long time. And in on that journey, not once did the brothers share one night under the same roof, nor did they even share a meal. So they wow. were They'd already at opposed. odds. Yeah. Yeah. Fully. Um so that was obviously a very awkward Euro trip to get back down to, to Yeah. Rome. That's a long way to go without talking to your your travelling companion. <laughs> Yeah, and by the time they, when they get down to Rome, they actually split the imperial palace in Rome directly in two. They oh literally just God. draw a line down the middle, and that's it. They're, they're so they're really not kind entities. of they're not really ruling together. They are carving up the Roman Empire into two, almost exactly, so that they each have their own half. Yeah, sort of, yeah. But um, their mother is the thing that's holding the whole thing together because um. They both love her quite a lot, um, but they would mm. only meet one another in the presence of their own bodyguards and their mother as well. So right. they would only ever meet like that. Um, and by the end of their first year, and fatefully their only year of joint emperorship, um, mm. Caracalla actually was trying to split the empire in two officially. So he would take the Western Roman Empire and Gita would take the Eastern Roman Empire. But mm. their mother, Julia said no, absolutely not. So she held real power over these two as well. Um, anyway, at this point, it, the situation became completely unbearable. And on the feast of the Saturnalia, on the 17th of December, 211, um, Caracalla makes the first move against his brother Gita and ambushes him after the festival and tries to get him you know, to kill. Killed. It's literally a hit. But he yeah. manages to fight them off thanks to his bodyguards. And um, wow. and there's no way of actually knowing whether it was Caracalla, but it was pretty obvious that it was. Um, oh, see, so he wasn't there. He sent no. his men to kill his brother, right? Yeah, and and so, th- so all that does though is it means Gita doubles his his bodyguard retinue, so he's mm. like completely untouchable now. Um, but as you can probably tell, he's the one who's as you can tell also by the fact that I've told him he's a shrinking violet. He's the one who is like bait. He's like the meat, and Caracalla's like the wolf. Yeah. Um, so Caracalla is now in a bit of a quandary because he still he wants total power. He hates his brother, but his mother is kind of in the way. So he Ooh. actually ends up like, how do you get your brother to drop his guard so soon after you've just tried to have him butchered? The way mm. you do it is through the mother. Oh no. So, yeah, so Caracalla decides the best way to lure his brother away from his bodyguards was by using their mother to make a peace between the two brothers. So he calls his brother and his mother to a meeting at his mother's chambers in the Imperial Palace mm-hmm. on the 26th of December. So this is nine days after the first assassination attempt. And he tells their mother that he wants to make amends with Gita and she's so happy about this. Um, and so they meet in her, in her chambers and... Um, the bodyguards wait outside, or so Gita thinks. And so Gita then comes in as soon as the doors close and they are suddenly barred by Caracalla's centurions, uh, several of his centurions he'd hidden in the room Mm. before the meeting, and they rush right at Gita and stab Gita to death. And Gita dies in his mother's arms in front of his brother. So the mother is there. It was, yeah. you know, it, it it was, and the mother didn't know that there were hidden soldiers. No, oh, no, no, that's no. awful. Yeah, so she watches her son die because her other son had him killed, and oh, then Caracalla becomes a, a tyrannical, emperor, and mm. he actually, just to finish, he actually loses his life when um he's actually on campaign. I forget where, maybe somewhere in Croatia, and he's literally going for a wee against the side of a tree. And one of his centurions stabs him in the back. 
so he dies wow. pretty quickly after yeah it. yeah well good because um, that's awful oh i feel I, so that'd be so awful for the mother as well like she may have really hoped this is finally a chance my two warring brothers are going to come together and son, she has to son. watch son and then has to watch one of her sons die it's just oh that's just yeah. so sad it really is it's it's wow. but that's you know that's roman history for you if you ever never go in there mm. with your eyes well, you get the cotton pulled away from your eyes when you... Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, and I suppose we haven't done too much of it, but I think uh, brother on brother, that's quite a common... Um, that, that That's quite common in a lot of warfare, especially as we were speaking earlier, when um, there's no clear line of succession. And actually, maybe we don't hear about as much because the European monarchs were like, no, 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 firstborn child, no matter <laughs> what he's like, he's in charge because... If you don't Otherwise. put one of them in charge, there's going to be it's going to be a lot of fighting. Um, well, yeah, yeah, really interesting. That was really good. So, yeah, that's so, the yeah. end of uh, of the closer look. Never trust your brother. Is the <laughs> we've both got brothers. I think we need to Who be would? a lot. We need to be a lot more on our guard. Um, whenever, not that we have anything they really want to take. I don't think. But if they ever want to start a podcast, <laughs> no. I think we need to you know make sure we only go anywhere with our bodyguards. So. <laughs> um, nice. Well, uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed uh, episode five. I've remembered it um, of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. Uh, as ever, please uh, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, um, uh, or just tell a friend. Um, it really helps out the show. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at Cloak and Dagger Podcast, uh, where we'll put up some images, and I'll put up some images uh, of today's episode, especially of uh, the Zulu Empire that Shaka built. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Will, for another episode. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll and see you next week. See ya.